Jazzy, thank you. Peter Gunn on Peter election Gunn. day. Oh, for Blues pretty good. Brothers. Yeah, the Blues Brothers. <laughs> of course. Oh, Blues Brothers. Yeah, well. <laughs> Depends on how old you are, right? Rumors of the demise of Seattle's housing market have been greatly exaggerated. We talked with Windermere Chief Economist Matthew Gardner. Month over month, I don't like to look at that because it's really you can see some fairly serious fluctuations. But I like to look at list prices mm-hmm. rather than sell prices. They're a leading, not lagging indicator. So if you look at those list prices, yes, they are modestly down about one percent month over month in King County, almost one and a half uh, in Pierce, about the same in Snohomish. But year over year, uh, list price up seventeen percent still here in King County. Now down south big different picture. They're only up about 2%. So we are seeing the market reverting back to a a normal pace. We're not going to see a a crash. A lot of people have been talking to me about this, saying, trying to take what's happening now with what happened in 2007. Mm. Uh, You can't. You you can't compare absolutely none whatsoever. However, that being said, we do need to see prices revert because 2020 and 2021, because of Powell, because of the pandemic, lowering mortgage rates and obviously remote working, we saw Powell's prices go up by double digits really across the board. And that is unsustainable. So they are, we are going to see them pull back, uh, but fairly modestly. We're not going to see the massive crash uh, that I think a lot of people maybe are hoping for, uh, with the opinion they can wait uh, long enough yeah. and then buy a house on the cheap. Well, I mean, sometimes, you know, depending on what your family situation is, you can't wait to buy a house. You need it now. So are there, are there neighborhoods that have become, shall we say, surprisingly affordable? Uh, I would say not surprisingly affordable, no. We have seen uh, those ex-urban and and more suburban markets do actually a lot better. And these would be places like Mount Lake Terrace, is Mm -hmm. an example, Lake Forest Park, where people have moved out of the central city, gone up there. It's not that far away. Housing prices are significantly cheaper. They're buying homes, renovating them. So we're seeing a lot of gentrification going on in some of these neighborhoods. We saw it in Burien. I think we'll start seeing it going down. Dash Point, Normandy Park. Uh, I think there's areas out there which people are considering now, whereas they would not have considered them if the pandemic had never happened. Mm. Do you still have to write those suck-up letters to the sellers? No, not, no, absolutely not. Those, those, I'm afraid, have, have gone away. Actually, it's probably yeah. pleasing they've gone away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, the days, again, a, a year ago, uh, people were saying that the list price for home was nothing more than the auction starting point. Yeah. Well, that has certainly changed. So we are seeing the, those prices correct. It's not a crash. We're getting back to normal. But we are going to have a bit of pain. But the biggest problem I fear is that we're not going to see the supply, the churn of existing housing. And there's one very simple reason for that. People like myself and maybe you, I, we refinanced our homes uh, through COVID because mortgage rates were so low. Well, if we don't have to move... Why would we move? Yeah, no way. And lose that. I'm not going to pay 7% on my house. I- exactly. <laughs> so if you're not seeing the supply, we know we still have some demand. That can actually act as a stabilization for prices. So it doesn't mean that they're going to see a free fall uh, heading south. Because I think a lot of us just not, aren't going to move unless we have to. Now, people do have to move. Uh, death, divorce, and job changes. But I think the choice to move now, it's going to be an interesting one. On the election, what kind of outcome are you rooting for? Do you want divided government? Is that what the economists want? Um, well, generally speaking, uh, the way this country has historically worked well is when one party has the White House and the other one has Congress. And that's just mm-hmm. the way. Now, I, this time, maybe not so much. I, my concern as an economist is over the course of the next two years, 
what will get done that's not going to be all about trying to impeach the president and uh, mm-hmm. trying to do what a needs lot of to get back and from an economic point well, because yeah. everybody says i mean jobs became the big issue in this economy right it wasn't abortion it wasn't i guess you know the future of democracy is always out there but i mean it, it was it was the economy so whoever gets in in into um who starts running things. What do they need to do? Infrastructure bill. I mean, that's certainly something which keeps on coming up, getting a better... Yeah, but nobody's running on that. I mean, Joe Biden's trying to, but nobody seems to care, and yet you're saying that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, it it is about that. Again, I'm very much from the old Keynesian school of uh, of economics that uh, as economies slow down, it's up to the government to step up. Isn't that infrastructure stuff inflationary, though? All those federal jobs? Isn't that across purposes with with what the other arm of the government's trying to do? it It can be, however, private industry significantly outweighs uh, government uh, employment yeah. in aggregate. So I, I, that that concerns me a lot less, quite frankly. Now, we have to get uh, inflation addressed. And my worry there is that let's look at corporate profits. Everyone's blaming inflation on higher labor costs and, the, and supply chain issues. Sure, those were... Um, are reasonable statements to make. However, when I see corporate profits up over 50%, um, 50%. Yes, that's great. Yeah, the uh, Economic Policy Institute put out a paper a, a while ago, which was looked at what happened through this past period with inflation and what happened in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary reading. Uh, it, it really is. 53.9% uh, growth. In wow. corporate profits. Is that through. being shared with investors? Yes, it is. However, but at the same time, that is true. It's great if you are in the stock market. Yeah. A lot of people aren't. Uh, and because you tend to find, uh, let's say on food, a uh, greater percentage of income of lower income households goes to food than higher income households. But on, on the profit side, labor costs have gone up a little bit, almost 8%. That's still not bad. But we're now hearing about the potential for implementing windfall taxes to these corporations uh, to say, you know, you, would that be a good thing? I, I think so. Yes. I really? Mean, I, yeah. Because that's what Biden's been saying for the oil companies, right? You, you made, but the oil companies say, but wait a second, in the lean years, we take losses and, uh, you know, you don't pay us for those. So why should we pay you when we finally get some payback? Well, I think, I mean, certainly each individual business sector is going to have its own argument not to pay taxes. That's, <laughs> that, that's the way of the world. But I, I, mean, I think that when they are, I see these kinds of numbers um, that are coming out of an independent institute uh, of economists, uh, we know that prices are what's called sticky coming down. So they can be very yeah. quick to go up. They can be very slow to come down. Then they're saying uh, there's reasons for it, but really, if you just look at their balance sheets, they're, they're making money hand over fist. And who's paying for that? Well, we are. And so I think it really kind of moves from the majority uh, coughing up to and the minority that benefits from it. And uh, so it, I, I think we need to try and figure out a way th- not just to use interest rates to slow down inflation, slow down the economy, but also look at some of these corporations and the amount of money they have been making through the COVID period and ch- just try and make it a bit fairer. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is if the Republicans take over – Instead of just spending all their time uh, impeaching Joe Biden, they should look for more ways to tax rich companies. But they won't. That's, They're that's, not going to do that. That is my concern, given the fact <laughs> if, if we do see a shift in the House. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. However, uh, again, as an, as, a, as an economist, I've got to look at uh, it from an almost agnostic standpoint. And, and for me, yeah, I mean, it's either pay these profits or let's start reducing prices. And that's something they can do. Windermere Chief Economist, Matthew Gardner. Thank you, Matthew. Always a pleasure. Hey!
Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The grades are in for our first real winter weather driving weekend across the passes. Chris, what does your report card look like? Well, I would have given the drivers an F. But this was the first winter weather weekend of the year, so I cut everybody some slack. So I'm giving you a D, maybe a D minus. It was less than two weeks ago when I begged everybody to get their cars ready and to follow the warning signs and restrictions when they arrived, as they did last weekend. But apparently nobody was listening. And we were left with closed passes and long delays, primarily because of driver behavior. The majority of the closures, sadly, that we saw this weekend were due to drivers not being prepared not following traction or chain requirements, spin outs, um, driving under the influence, or simply just driving way too fast for conditions. The Washington Department of Transportation's Tina Werner says the passes would have been in much better shape if drivers had planned ahead or at least followed those traction tire or chain requirements. I mean, the calculus for closures like we saw last weekend can be really simple. One car spins out because it wasn't that, didn't have chains. Another car slows to avoid it. That car then loses traction and spins out itself. Then maybe a truck slows and spins out to avoid the first two, and it just casts from there. It really just takes one person, sadly, to close down a highway or a mountain path for all of us. In fact, I saw several trucks that did not chain up, that spinned out on the pass as well. Welcome to a $500 fine. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw this test out and let you take it again when we have similar weather. Then I'm going to regrade. So study item number one from the study guide. Slow down and don't be overconfident in your skills or in your four-wheel or all-wheel drive vehicle. I think I can travel at the posted speed limit um, when in reality we need everyone to slow down, to increase your following distance, um, to follow those traction and chain requirements, and to look out for our road crews that are out there pre-treating and plowing highways. Item two is more of a lab requirement. Maybe practicing putting on your chains in your driveway before you're actually at the pass, right? Or maybe it's your first time putting them on for the season or ever. Don't want that to be on the shoulder of I-90. Item three, simple. Don't crowd the plow. Because if you see a snow plow or some of our trucks out at work, be patient and please stay back. Um, Your best bet is to wait until the operator pulls over and they'll let you pass when it's safe. Stay a few hundred feet behind those plows and trucks. And if you want to pass them, make sure that you have two open lanes to do so. That's about the safety cushion that you need. These trucks have blind spots on all sides. You can use extreme caution to pass them slowly, um, but be smart, be patient. Um, And don't pass unless there's a safe space to do so. Please keep extra warm items, food, and water with you when crossing the passes. Some drivers reported being stuck on I-90 for more than an hour before being able to get to the turnaround or to get off the road. So you'll want that stuff with you. Check your tires again. Make sure they're winter ready. Make sure your wipers are good and the wiper fluid is full. It's hard enough to keep the passes open when we get the record snow that we've had so far, which is actually 34 inches since October 26th at Snoqualmie Pass, when drivers are prepared, when drivers are not. We get what we got last weekend. We have time to study. Let's hope we all ace the next test. So you're saying treat it like an expedition. Pretty much. Yeah. You got to be ready. Yeah. And know what you're doing. And please carry your chains. Use your chains. And if the chain sign says up, don't be driving your front wheel drive car up there and not chain up thinking you're going to make because it it really can just take one car losing it. Then another car loses a little bit, loses traction. Then they get stopped. The next thing you know, even a semi with chains loses its momentum and then it gets stuck. And the next thing you know, the pass is closed. And it's just that simple. And we have the ability to really 
change that behavior and keep the passes open. Now, if we get a, just a ton of blizzard, you know, whatever, and it's closed because of that, they can't clear it. That's one thing. But this last weekend, it wasn't that. Yeah. It was just people not being prepared or not paying attention to the requirements. And as I said, that's a $500 fine. You get ticketed for not having your chains on when you're supposed to. You also have a follow-up on that epic accident on I-5, which I think is worth uh, discussing here. So uh, remind us what that was and, and what happened. Yeah, this was last week when we uh, had there was a crash overnight that shut down northbound I-5 in the Northgate area. Mm-hmm. It was closed down from about one thirty in the morning, uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, all the way through almost the entirety of morning drive. And this was, uh, it was at that point, it was just a suspicion of DUI and impairment with serious injuries. Uh, one of the people involved in that crash, a 29-year-old woman, actually died later at the hospital. So This it, was the car that was hit by the... By, and so what we found out, the charging documents have come out, and uh, King County has charged a 45-year-old man with vehicular homicide and reckless driving, and it turned turns out, according to the charging documents, that he was trying to end his own life by driving through the construction zone at 130th there and then on to I-5. Wow. It was a suicide attempt, unfortunately. And then he ended up taking out several different cars and then killing a 29-year-old woman. Uh, and that person, yeah, he apparently, according to the charging documents, he told a nurse he was, he was trying to end his own life when he intentionally drove uh, into that construction zone, eventually flipping onto I five and hitting several cars. Uh, yeah, so just a, so he actually w- w- went airborne and landed on the yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you're familiar with the area right around where the one thirtieth off ramp to north uh, northbound I five, you the he kind of came up on along the side of that, then drove down into the construction zone underneath the columns for light rail, and then ended up flipping onto the freeway and taking out several different cars along the way. One of them flipped and then hit another car. Uh, so there were significant injuries, including wow. the, the one fatality. And they would have had no way of avoiding that. No, there's no, I mean, it was someone comes in kind of <laughs> recklessly to, on your left-hand side through a construction zone. No, you're not expecting that. You have no chance. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it uh, that's that's where we are on this. Uh, King County's asked for the person to be held on $2 million bail. Uh, so, yeah, the charging documents just came out last night. But, yeah, just a horrible, horrible situation. But now we have much more information on that. And, man, it just, it's it's sad. It's just really sad all the way around. Chad's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And with just over 12 hours to get those ballots into a drop box, state party leaders are preparing for the final stretch on Election Day. Current Radio's Hannah Scott joins us with what you need to know. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Yes, I uh, got a chance to talk to both of our state party leaders late yesterday. And State Democratic Party Chair Tina Podlodowski tells me they are focused on ensuring voters go blue all the way down the ballot. We've got Patty Murray running statewide, uh, our incredible U.S. Senator. We've got Steve Hobbs, our incredible Secretary of State. Every single Washingtonian who's eligible to vote can vote for those two great Democrats. And then take a look to see... Who are your Democrats in your congressional district, as well as your legislators? And vote D up and down the ballot. We're working hard to get Kim Schreier in a very contested race. Uh, back to D.C., back to represent us, the only female pediatrician in Congress and the only pro-choice doctor in Congress. We're excited to have her there. And then we've got a great upset brewing in 
Washington three with Marie Perez uh, in a generally what's been a Republican district for at least for a little while taking on Joe Kent. So we're going to make sure that we win that one as well. I asked Republican State Party Chair Caleb Heimlich how the Republicans are feeling as we get down to the wire. I would say cautiously optimistic. I think we've got a lot of momentum. We're certainly seeing uh, momentum across the country. Uh, the big question is, is that going to translate here to Washington state? Now, for Democrats, it all starts at the top of the ballot. We want to make certain that every vote we can is cast for Senator Murray for her reelect. Here's what I know. Senator Murray has served the people of Washington state and this nation incredibly well. I think uh, come election night, you will see Patty Murray is still our senator here in Washington state. Republicans are also hyper focused on the top of that U.S. Senate race. Tiffany Smiley's in a close race with Patty Murray. Lots of polls have shown it's it's really neck and neck. And uh, that's a good sign for us then across the state. I think if she's that close statewide, obviously if she wins, that's a huge upset and a major win for Republicans in Washington state. But if she's right there, that means she's winning in a lot of our swing districts and winning in the 8th Congressional District because most of those swing districts and certainly the 8th Congressional District lean more Republican than the overall statewide total. So if it's a close race for the Senate, that means I think we're in a good position for the 8th Congressional District. So I think that means Matt Larkin could win. But as we mentioned yesterday, Democrats argue. Republicans have put junk polls out there in the field. That's true. And that's skewing what you see in terms of data. They've also spent millions of dollars on these terrible ads that are coming from dark money packs. Now, while some of these so-called junk polls combined with legit poll numbers suggesting uh, as tight of a race as one point between Smiley and Murray, Democrats say when you get rid of those junk polls, Murray maintains a nine to ten point lead. Even if she's ahead by ten, that still has closed significantly since the primary. I mean, the primary, we were looking at an 18, 19 point gap. And so if if Tiffany's closed to within ten, uh, that was still a lot of momentum and progress. And we had hundreds of people at a bus tour for Tiffany Smiley. And so there's real momentum, real excitement. She's the best funded U.S. Senate candidate we've ever had. I mean, I think people are ready for the TV commercials to be done and to go back to watching the Seahawks games in peace. But uh, I think that shows, hey, this is actually a competitive race. Now, in the other statewide race for Secretary of State, Podlodowski says they're targeting the Republican voters. Here's why. That's a very interesting situation. You know, there are only two names on the ballot, our incredible Democratic Secretary of State, Steve Hobbs, and then uh, so-called independent Julie Anderson. But Brad Clifford, the MAGA Republican election denier, is running a write-in campaign, and he's gaining some traction in central and eastern Washington. So we are making sure that uh, Republicans who break with their party around this idea of election denial make certain that they are not writing in Brad Clifford. And in fact, the person who will keep our election system safe, the person who has proven that is Steve Hobbs. So, hey, Republicans, if you don't believe in election denying, then cast your vote for Steve Hobbs as the Democrat. Now, what we had was, again, the independent and the Democrat left on the ticket. And Caleb says, obviously, the Republicans didn't back either of them. So they ended up backing the write-in candidate, Brad Clipper. We'll see. I mean, obviously, write-ins are very tough. And, and frankly, because we had four candidates as Republicans running in that race, that's we shot ourselves in the foot. And that's why we don't have a candidate in the general election. I think it's important to remember Julie Anderson got 12.8 percent of the vote in August. It's not like she got 
30 or 40, 12.8 and barely beating out other Republicans that were at 12.2 or something like that. So uh, she narrowly came in second. Obviously, that meant the four Republicans didn't move forward. The interesting thing about that is in the polling that I've been covering here in the last week, the Clippert write-in candidacy, because you do have further to the right Republicans just going for whoever the Republican is, even if that's a write-in ticket, and they know about the Clippert write-in candidacy, that is skewing in favor of Steve Hobbs as Democrat, because it's taking away from that so-called independent vote that Julie Anderson may have had. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, a couple of other interesting notes I wanted to point out that they said uh, in the third congressional district, no qualms whatsoever from the Republican side. Caleb told me he absolutely believes that Joe Kent is going to win in that race, and it'll be a tough win for Democrats with Marie Perez. So we'll see. Both sides tell me 8th District is, is really too close to call at this point. And on the state legislative side, you know, uh, several months ago, I think Republicans were telling me they thought they had a shot at really uh, getting uh, this red wave, turning around the balance in Olympia. Uh, now, at this point, what they think is that they can pick up a couple of seats in both the House and the Senate and at least kind of start to get that balance of power shifting a, a little bit to the even side where, uh, you know, even a couple of votes in the Senate and the House would, would make a difference as far as the way uh, the votes play out in Olympia. So we'll see. Well, they're looking at the House seats in the 42nd. Both uh, sides, actually, though, putting a lot of attention now on that House race in the 10th district where Clive Shavers was. Of course, in just the last week or so, we had uh, some issues raised about his uh, embellishing in yes. some of his mailers. So By his own family. By his own family. So Democrats are trying to defend against that. They say he came out, he owned it, and they, they were glad to see that. Uh, they're still hoping he wins, but they, they realize it's up in the air. Republicans are hitting in that hard. So did either of the party chairs have any complaints about Election Day intimidation or anything like that? No, actually, neither one of them uh, said that. And, and I know uh, just from talking to Caleb, behind like over the last several election cycles that's the, the state republican party tries to distance itself very much from that and i actually tina uh, podlodowski didn't uh, say too much to me about that either i think that's a bigger issue on the national scale than it is so much here in washington state right now one thing i do want to point out that i've neglected to say is uh, the strategy and i think we saw this if people remember in the august primary results uh, we do expect and it goes kind of counter to what we see in seattle elections we do expect the republican votes will be the latter to come in, right? So there's yes. you've got some of the conservatives who are just out of tradition. Uh, they, they just vote on election day, right? They go and they do it, and they drop their ballot on election day. At the same time, it is an absolute strategy by some of the Republican voters to wait till that last minute. So Caleb Heimlich told me last night he believes that whatever the initial drop is tonight, he says that is likely going to be the low point for Republicans, and that it's all going to be in their favor moving forward. So we'll see. Kyra News Radio's Hannah Scott. Time for your daily dose of kindness now. It is sponsored by Baird. Some dreams do come true. 10-year-old Quinn Larson was chosen to have a wish granted by the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but instead of using it just for himself, he instead donated it to help build a playground in his hometown in Minnesota so kids like him could have fun, too. Quinn fell from a window and got meningitis, lost his hearing and his ability to speak, but he never lost his drive. Quinn's parents tell WCCO-TV... I think the community raised... $307,000 just to make just it happen yeah. in this small town. Right. Yeah. And with Quinn's money and a grant from the Department of Natural Resources, what was once a cornfield is now a field of dreams. And then we built it and they came. 
the kids came. About 500 people showed up at Quinn's Playground. The ground is wheelchair accessible. There's a resting spot for kids with autism and a zip line. You did this, Quinn. You did this. This is yours. This is your dream. A dream realized in silence, strength, and, of course, service to others. <laughs> 748. And now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at 9 here in Cairo News Radio, here's G Scott. Mm. We're asking people, do you remember your first election day? Do you remember your first election day? I don't know that I remember my first election day. But I do know that Election Day, when I was younger, brought me anxiety. Really? Yes. Because I just remember being cold all the time, being cold. And I remember waiting in long lines, right? And I also was in Chicago. Chicago. And I also remember how super excited that my father used to be. And I thought, when I was younger, I was like, man, this is weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Huh. But now, looking back on it, I look back on it and I'm like, wow. If I remember standing in those long lines in the 80s, I could only imagine what it was like before that or with the fight that there was to even be able to vote. You know, we, you know, we do have a history in this country of people preventing yeah. those from voting. But is that CRT? CRT? Oh, yeah. for you to say that? Yeah. I just want to make, I just I make sure. I'm trying to feel, do, do I feel threatened by that? But, no, any, you know. but, it, but anyways, um, that's what I think about voting. And so that's what, when I think about voting here in the state of Washington, I'm just like, every time my wife and I, we sit down, she wasn't my wife before we started this whole voting process, but just to sit down with coffee and just in your house and just kind of fill out your ballot and take it to the box. I think that is a beautiful thing. I just wonder if at some point the entire United States is going to uh, start doing that. But anyways, uh, yeah, that's my thoughts on Election Day. And but today's the day. It's here. And I don't care what happens. I don't care what happens. There's just, and I won't say who's, there's just one ad I do not want to hear for the rest of my life. That's it. Colleen? You already <laughs> said it on Twitter. Oh, I said it on Twitter? Yeah, you is did. Is the outstanding... <laughs> Outstanding. It's Tiffany Smiley, man. It's Tiffany Smiley. That's the ad. I don't. I never want to hear that. I'm. I'm being serious. I. Really, whatever the outcome, it's the outcome. Let it happen. Yes. Take me off the hook from hearing that ad again. Well, they're all gone wish, as of uh, tomorrow. Yeah, as of tomorrow. I just wish we had a little bit more focus on. We're getting distracted by all of this, uh, you know, questioning about election integrity and security, which is important. But we know that fraud is next to none here in Washington. And if there is fraud, they figure it out and, and they get to the bottom of it. I would like to focus more on rules around how money is spent and, and what's allowed to be said. Because, you know, as Davis said in his own commentary, politicians can say what they want in those ads and they pay for them. We run them. We can't exchange them in any way. And I just think that that, to me, is the most fraudulent part of elections, that candidates can lie and we can't do anything about it but run those ads and, and take the money. I, I would love to see more focus on that. 
Hmm. No, I think you do about it. It's not enough for politicians to do that, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess, but like, how is that a solution? I would rather have integrity leading up to election day rather than using my vote as a protest. Like, I want to use my vote as a means to change our country, not as a way to protest bad behavior. That to me sounds like our election system going down the drain. So, mm-hmm. term limits is what you're looking at. Um, not term limits. Uh, not. I mean, we can talk about term limits. Sure. I think that that's an important conversation. What I'm talking about are the rules around how you can lie leading up to it. And the fact that we track money to predict who's going to win. Like, oh, this candidate has 60 million. This candidate has 55 million. So the candidate with 60 million is going to win. How in the world did fundraising become the biggest indicator of who wins elections? You mean, you mean, so... That fundraising and that money, is that is that handouts or is that gifts? Which one is it? I don't know. Oh. I just don't think it's right that a, a candidate no, can I win can, just can, because they have more money. What do you I got? can tell you from experience, the candidate doesn't see that money. That money goes yeah. directly to radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, Tax, yeah. and hey, social hey, media. Hey, Dave. Yeah. When you say that the person running a campaign, that the person running doesn't see that money, mm-hmm. in my heart of hearts, when you say it, mm-hmm. I believe you don't see that money. I don't. I don't believe that that's the case. They keep uh, the money for, but they do. I mean, my husband used to run a couple of elections way, way, way back in the day, and and they keep that money and a lot of the advertising away from the candidates, so they yeah. can't get in trouble. They have PACs that do the dirty work for them because the PACs will just sling lawsuits back and forth between one another, you know, having fun playing catch, and then you know the candidate with the most money wins. I, I just you know not always though. They're they're well financed candidates. Who, who have lost in this state. I forget which sure. election it was, but I mean, it happens. But yeah, money buys publicity. And since most people make their choice based on which name seems more familiar, or more comfortable without right. doing a lot of research, that's why it works. I wish all this fundraising, I, I, I wish the same energy that is right. put into fundraising for all this campaigning, you ready for this? <clears throat> was put into actually giving to the people that you care about that can't buy groceries. Right, right. Yeah, like food banks are like, it's like, hey, can you guys help us with all this inflation? How about election season starts 30 days before the election? And we just stop all of this for two or three years ahead of time. That would be great. I'm worried about inflation. $30-something million for a campaign combined for, for the Senate race. Oh, man. It's sickening. It's sickening. If you can somehow instill fear over groceries, then you get people to give, yeah. Crying. G. Scott, 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. Thanks, G. On Tuesdays, we go live to Washington, D.C., and New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. Do you realize that we've been doing this every Tuesday, about 48 Tuesdays a year since 2015? I know. It's been a long time. I even met you briefly once in, when was it, 2016 in Cleveland? Cleveland. Cleveland. In Cleveland, that's Republican right. convention. That's right. That's right. All right, so here we are, the fourth big nationwide election day that we've uh, had you on the air, and I know that you hate to predict things. So... Uh, you know that I always get them wrong. I love predicting it, but I'm always wrong. You love predicting, but well, if you let, let me ask you this: if you were to predict correctly, what would you be predicting now? <laughs> if I had to put money on it, let's say yeah. if I had to bet, I would bet on a Republican sweep. I bet, I bet they get the House and the Senate. Well, that's an easy call because that's pretty much what all the polls are saying. I'm trying to figure out what would if there's anything out there, some last minute issue that would upset it. But I think I think the issues have been talked out, right? I mean, we had we have the crime issue, we have the protecting uh, democracy issue, we have uh, the abortion issue. We've had ample time to discuss all that stuff. I don't. Do you see any? 
last minute change that would uh, that would uh, upset those poll results? You know, I, the thing that I guess I'm still looking at is, you know, this, the House, I do believe the Republicans will take. I mean, I, I thought that everybody's been predicting that for a year now. Yeah. The Senate, you know, there's the Republicans did nominate some pretty terrible candidates in a variety of states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia. And, you know, those states, it seems like in Arizona as well, you know, it, at least it seems like those states, the polls are close. I have not seen anything that says like, oh, yeah, definitely the Republicans are going to, you know, are certain to win in the Senate. I think the Senate really is close to a toss up. But I, I just feel like the way these races go, you know, th- there's always sort of a rush at the end away from the party in power. Um, and so, I, you know, I, th- I have to think that they're going to win at least a couple of them. They only need a couple of them to to take that Senate. So assuming this all comes true and Republicans take over, uh, will they, and we just had our, our economist Matthew Gardner on, worried that instead of taking care of business, they're going to impeach Biden. And all the focus is going to be on that. And the economy, despite all the claims of how important it is, is going to uh, be left to fester. What do you think? I do think there's a strong chance of that. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, who's going to be the speaker if the Republicans take the House. I've known him for a long time. He is like the cool dad in high school, right? You go to his house because he lets you do anything. And that's how he's always governed. You know, from go back to the Tea Party freshmen of 2010 and 2012, when they wanted to, you know, to, to not raise the debt ceiling, put the country to default, shut down the government, he always let him do it. He, he's somebody who doesn't tell, he doesn't lead, he follows. And so right now he's saying things like, oh, well, you know, we're going to be responsible. We're not going to teach Biden. But then he's going to have a bunch of really far right freshmen and members who are going to want to do that. It told people they would do that. Yeah. And, you know, he's never been somebody who stands up to that kind of pressure. So I do see him getting railroaded and trying to impeach Biden and maybe a bunch of other uh, officials. I don't see them trying to govern responsibly. He's just not that person. Okay, so there's one prediction. Impeachment is on the table. So when they talk about uh, fixing inflation, most of the time they say, we're going to do it by cutting the budget. When you ask, however, will you cut, and you, you have to mention the programs where the money is, right, which is Medicare, yeah. Medicaid, Social Security, uh, the defense, they say, no, 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 we're not touching any of that. So what would get cut, do you think? Well, I mean, we've been through this before in 2010, you know, the Tea Party wave came in and they said, oh, we're going to make huge cuts. But yeah, they don't, their voters, a lot of them get Social Security and Medicaid. They don't want to cut that. You know, so they'll talk a lot about, uh, you know, waste, waste and fraud, and they'll try to cut, you know, programs that they don't like that they think help Democrats. But, you know, without Social Security and Medicaid, there's not that much money out there now to make it dent in inflation. So I, I do believe that they're going to just blame Biden for whatever is going on, no matter that mm-hmm. they're, they're now partly in charge. Uh, I don't see them being dumb enough to touch. I mean, there's been some talk they're going to go after Social Security and Medicare, but that would be so stupid for them to do that. I mean, every time they've touched that, it's blown up in their faces. So yeah. I can't see them doing that again. Well, they, talk, they talk about the uh, IRS, the 87,000 IRS employees. The IRS is uh, a fraction of a percent of the budget, just the cost of running it. Uh, and at the same time, they're the ones who collect the $3 trillion that the nation needs so that it's not quite as badly uh, in debt as it would otherwise be. I, do, you, do you think they will go ahead and uh, try to cut the IRS appropriation? Oh, yeah. I mean, they've done that before. I mean, they, they, the problem here is that, like, the numbers in the U.S. budget are so huge that it's really hard for a regular person like you or me to comprehend what's big and what's not in the context of the budget. And so 87,000 IRS agents sounds like a lot. I mean, you know, let's cut that. Why not? But it's, uh, it, you know, like you said, in the context of the federal budget, it's actually a really small amount. And it does help, you know, does help the budget overall by people collecting, you know, the government collecting more taxes or collecting more of the taxes it's owed. 
these guys don't raise taxes. But I think they'll go after things like that that just sound good in a soundbite um, and, you know, probably won't succeed because Biden will still be president. What do you think the Democrats uh, have learned? I get the impression as I hear more and more Democrats say, oh, we should have talked more about crime, that they they finally realize that crime is an important issue, even among liberals. I do. I think that they, you know, regret some of them what they said in 2020, the sort of, you know, defund the police, anti-police rhetoric, and also that they that, you know, obviously Biden engaged in that, but some some Democrats did. And I think they regret, like, not addressing, you know, focusing on questions of fairness and police brutality, you know, in a, to the exclusion of reducing crime. Because you do see, you know, there has been an increase in crime and homelessness and sort of quality of life issues in a lot of big cities that have soured some people on Democratic governance. So I, I do think they should have focused more on that. Um, but, you know, the, there's not much they could have done in 2022. I think the, the cake was sort of baked in, on those issues. I'm not sure saying crime would have helped them in this election. Yeah. Uh, Seattle, I mean, y- you get around a lot. Is homelessness an issue just here in Seattle or pretty much everywhere? Everywhere. DC's yeah. had a lot of homeless, you know, encampments as well. I mean, LA's had a ton of them. And it's a really difficult issue, but I think big cities have struggled with you know, how do you deal with that uh, in a way that's humane, but also effective? Yeah. OK, so um, for people who are going to be sitting up uh, all night watching for election results, uh, we know it's going to take time because of all the, the mail-in voting. But are there certain uh, bellwether races around the country that you will be paying particular attention to? Well, it sounds trite, but, you know, there, there are some really close Senate elections in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio uh, and uh, Ohio and and Georgia uh, and Nevada, too. And I guess I'll be, I'll be watching those. You know, the Georgia race, you know, the, the Senate, the control of the Senate could be left undetermined if the Georgia race goes to a runoff. Remember, if no candidate in Georgia gets to 50 percent, then we'll go to a runoff, uh, which will be, I think, in December. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that could be, you know, that, that we could end up having no result even after all the votes are counted. But, yeah, I would look at those races. And, you know, the things that I'm really concerned about, um, rather than, you know, about the outcome, rather than just as bellwethers, are the secretary of state races in Nevada and Arizona. There's guys running in both those places on the Republican side who basically are campaigning on the idea that the 2020 election was stolen and, you know, at best would introduce chaos into the voting in 2024 and at worst, you know, try to steal it for their guy. Have they said exactly what they do, by the way? Uh, Things like we should hand count all ballots. We should eliminate mail-in voting. You know, uh, which would, you know, those things would introduce, especially trying to hand count all the ballots in an entire state. Would, mm-hmm. would, it just Well, Arizona did and that, would, and it confirmed what the machines did. I mean, if they wanted to spend all that money, I guess they can. But there's there's no one saying uh, I can unilaterally decide who won regardless of the vote, right? No, but the way that those, like the guy in Nevada has said, look, if there were people like me in charge in 2020, then Trump would have won. You know, so, you know, I think that there's, the danger is that those people will think that the end justifies the means. And if their guy loses, there must have been fraud. And they'll be in a position to declare that and do something about it in 2024 if they win tonight. Mm-hmm. By the way, my spies tell me that you dropped off Twitter. Why? <laughs> I'm still on Twitter. I just, you know, I feel like it had been giving me, it had, I had been getting less from it than I had been giving to it. Uh, and I, I'm a little interested in how Elon Musk is going to handle it. You know, I don't. I don't like the idea of doing unpaid labor for the world's richest man, and I kind of want to see what he does with that community before I come back and put a lot of time into it. Doesn't he realize you're a Pulitzer Prize winner and he needs to to make sure that you're a happy customer? 
Well, I, I can't make him too mad because I have a Tesla, and I'm a little afraid that if, he, if I make him too mad, he'll, he'll take control of it in the middle of the night and drive it into the filming. Hey, let me know how that goes, all right? Because that's a story. <laughs> that's a front-page story. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, forget the blue check mark. How about the kill switch for your Tesla? <laughs> Wow. (laughs) I mean, they are connected to the Internet, and so who knows? Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.